everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, less than 10 days, the country of the Philippines is going to elect a brand new leader. Now, this election results not only will impact the people in the Philippines, but also could impact the relationship between the Philippines and any other countries in Asia, and of course, with the states, and of course, in Europe as well. Now, if you follow the news lately, we've been addressing this political change under globalization. However, today, it's so interesting that when we look at the country of Philippines, not only under globalization, the country has become more internationalized, but internally, we need to look something deeper beyond this internationalism which is the issue of corruption. That's why today it's my great honor to invite Dr. Daniel Davis. Now, Dr. Davis recently completed his PhD in politics at the University of Virginia, and his dissertation research explores how dynasties sabotage accountability for corruption in the Philippines. And his research looks at the origins of dynasties, how they prevent persecution for corruption, and how they keep getting elected. And of course, eventually that we are going to talk about how corruption is taking place in the Philippines and its impact in the long run. Without further ado, Dr. Davis, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's uh, great to be here. Dr. Davis, I want to go back to the article that, again, that's the initial uh, uh, a contact that I sent to you because this uh, um, amazing article that you wrote and it's entitled Why Corruption Thrives in the Philippines. You know, just by reading this title, I think it's kind of, you know, I'll say it's interesting to, 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 to ask the question, what do you mean by when you say corruption is actually thrives in the Philippines? Because given this condition, if you're living in this corrupted government or living under this corrupted government, that's not really a good sign for any other elections, don't you think? Uh, no, I, I think that's correct. Yeah, I mean, corruption is is a pretty endemic problem in the Philippines. Uh, um, it's been going on, you know, sort of indefinitely, going sort of back in time. The Philippines suffers pretty substantially from sort of we call both petty corruption, which is sort of your small scale being asked for a bribe by, a, you know, in exchange for an official document or something mm. like that. But also from problems with, with grand corruption, from, you know, corruption in building public projects, corruption in how money is given out. There was a scandal uh, a few years ago about money being given out by the by essentially from congress to fake uh, ngos where congressmen were sending money to sort of pretend organizations that then funneled the money back to them or to them and to other people uh so they there are these sort of lots of different problems with with corruption in the philippines but again i, I you know i don't want to suggest that it's only a philippines problem you know corruption is really a problem all over the world. We see it in sort of different forms in different countries. In the US, when we think about corruption, it's more likely to be seen in terms of grand corruption, you know, mm. sort of questions about larger scale projects. Or even in the US, we have problems with sort of 
institutionalized corruption, where the way we finance elections, you know, would be considered a, a criminal, you know, uh, act in other places, giving money directly to politicians, you know, that's, uh, um, especially from, you know, sort of large businesses and organizations, that's, that is fairly corrupt on its face. But the Philippines has been suffering from these issues for a long time, um, going back, you know, throughout sort of the post-Marcos era, through Marcos, and even before that. And I think a big, um, a big central cause of this is the, the power and the sort of uh, pernicious effect of dynasties, mm. of sort of political families that really uh, run, you know, pretty much the whole country. Mm. Um, you know, um, Dr. Davis, I, I, I want to ask the question is, Right now, there are four candidates in line, and they're vying for this presidential election. And again, if corruption has become so common in the country of Philippines, how could the candidates continue to rake the trust among the voters? So in other words, if corruption has become something so prevalent, why bother even to hold election? Why can't you say, I'm sorry, buy it? Why can't you just buy the results? Again, again, Dr. Davis, as you mentioned before, family generations and family ties, you know, they could generate wider noises. Why even bother to have the election? Why can't we just cancel the election, You use the finance to buy it and to create the result, and eventually that will uh, comfort everybody? What's, what's the problem with that? Well, I mean, I think you actually touched on a important issue here, which is is vote buying. Uh, the Philippines uh, also has, you know, you can see as part of this, also has a very substantial issue with with vote buying. Candidates giving sometimes money, often you know, gifts or sort of goods to voters in exchange for their votes. This is a very um, very widely used system in the Philippines where essentially blocks of voters will deliver votes to whatever candidate will will you know will offer more so that's that's a very substantial problem often also in political science we sometimes think of these as separate but related issues as corruption mm -hmm. about taking a politician taking money in and vote buying as about them sending money out basically in exchange for elections but they're very related um in fact one major reason political uh, uh, candidates or political officers engage in corruption is to get money to then turn around and buy votes to stay in office. Mm. So that is a very substantial problem in the Philippines. Um, probably somewhat less when we think about a uh, presidential election because it's the scale is too big, basically. But, um, you know, you can't sort of deliver goods to every voter in the country or every person in the country. But it is a really substantial problem. Uh, it also is a problem of, you know, how candidates are seen. I mean, um, so you talk about four candidates. There are really sort of two candidates that are, are have way, you know, only sort of two candidates at this point with a realistic shot. Mm. There's uh, the vice president, Lenny, who uh, is seen as a, a reformer generally. She is probably mostly well known for being the one official in the government to stand up uh, against Duterte. Mm. She was very, she was essentially the leader of sort of the anti-Duterte, you know, faction. 
uh, in the government, uh, presidents and vice presidents in the Philippines are elected separately. So she was never, never close, even though she was the vice president while Duterte was president, they were never close. Um, so she's seen as something of a reformer and, you know, she's seen as, as, uh, um, in a positive light for staying up to Duterte, but while Duterte has a bad reputation internationally, mm. he, he has been and remains very popular in the Philippines. Um, so her, you know, opposition to him is not seen by everybody in a good light. Um, and Bong uh, uh, Bong has, you know, he is, He's eventually been sort of able to position himself as sort of a successor to Duterte. He wasn't, Duterte didn't specifically support any candidate, but he, his, one of his second in commands uh, is also running, uh, though not doing this way, way out of the, mm. the, the voting point. But, uh, um, you know, Bong Bong really sort of brought a lot of that, um, those voters to him. And he's run a a campaign that's in a lot of ways smarter. He's sort of he's been able to turn the negative attention about him, about his father. He's the son of the the late dictator. He's been able to turn a lot of that into a positive by making the whole campaign just focused on him. Mm. So it's less him versus anyone else, and just him good or him bad. And that's you know uh, um, I think as we've seen you know, in the U.S. as well recently, you know, the idea that all news is all press is good press has some uh, some uh, truth to it. You know, mm. even being attacked, if you keep the focus on on yourself, that can be that can be, you know, a way to, to sort of build attention. Mm. And he's mm. he it seems very unlike it seems pretty certain he's going to win. I mean, mm. it would be this would be the most shocking failing of polling. This would be, you know, 2016 in America would have nothing compared to this. This would be, mm. he's up 25, 30 points in the polls, which is wow. an enormous amount. Mm. Um, in fact, usually because the Philippines, they have <laughs> presidential elections with a number of candidates where you just need to get the largest number of votes, a plurality of votes. Mm. Usually candidates are elected without an outright majority, you know, the high 30s, low 40s percent is usually enough to win. And he's polling over 50, which would be a bigger a bigger win than, than Duterte or than the president before him, Aquino, had. Um, so it looks like he's going to win pretty easily. Mm. Um, I haven't seen the most recent polling, but uh, um, it looks like Duterte's daughter is going to win the vice presidency. Mm. I haven't seen the most recent well, you know, Dr. Davis, again, I want to go back to the article. That's something you wrote. You know, again, this is very interesting. You say over the past four years that you have closely examined the impact of political dynasties on election outcomes in the Philippines and also analyzed the result of 10 election cycles since 1992 involving 500,000 candidates. And also your research also shows that when given a choice, Philippine voters are less likely to vote for corrupt politicians. You know, on one hand, I understand that elections should be legitimate. So in other words, we know that for any other countries, that's what we call the freedom. And that's what we called the promise, you know, of the country, you know, by going this legitimate election. But on the other hand, it's kind of silly that people, the voters, understand 
All politicians are corrupted one way or another. All politicians are going to lie in order to collect votes. So again, my qu next question to you is, how could each candidate, especially regarding the uh, uh, the vice president candidate or regarding Bong Bong, how could they dodge the issue of corruption in order to continue to gain the trust from the voters, especially for the people of the Philippines? Thanks. So there's an interesting question in corruption research, which is people, when you ask them all over the world, say they hate corruption. You know, it's constantly... You know, one of the top things people complain about or hate. I mean, the entire sort of Arab Spring was touched off over issues of corruption. Uh, you know, so you see revolutions fought over corruption, not uncommon. Mm. At the same time, people routinely vote for corrupt politicians. So how can both of these things be true at the same time, that people hate corruption but vote routinely for corrupt politicians? Part of the answer is that... Um, Voters treat general accusations of corruption differently than specific information about mm. corruption. So voters might generally feel, oh, they're all corrupt, but they don't really act on that. It's mm. more when they're presented with specific information about this person did this thing. That's when you tend to get a, a stronger effect. Uh, so one thing politicians do is, you know, to to try to avoid or tamp down any specific accusations. Um, so it's different to say, I think this, this guy is suspect than to say he specifically did this and that. Uh, Bung Bung's biggest, you know, his biggest uh, uh, um, problem in the past was the case for tax evasion. He was convicted at one point of tax evasion. This all relates not so much to his personal taxes as to taxes paid on his father's estate. Mm. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. and his wife embezzled an enormous amount of money. Uh, no one's exactly sure, but $10 billion plus dollars is not wow. you know, during their time. Um, and the Philippines has never really recovered all of that money. They, they recovered a little bit of it in terms of sort of after Marco Sr. fled the country, they seized some property and things like that. But a lot of this money essentially just disappeared into sort of black holes. Mm. Um, so he was at one point convicted of tax evasion for this, but ended up getting the case knocked down to just a fine. Um, but he, he, you know, spends a lot of, or he spent a lot of time trying to dodge specific accusations. Um, there was a scandal, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned, a few years ago about um, politicians funneling money to non-existent NGOs. Mm. It was implicated in that, but it's never gone to trial. There's never actually been an indictment yet, um, which is tied into another problem in the Philippines, which is that the investigative institutions are also uh, extremely weak. So you have you know, evidence, some evidence that he was involved in this corrupt, in this uh, um, fake NGO scandal. The the businesswoman who sort of masterminded the whole thing he said he was involved, um, but he denies it. And there's never really been a there's never been a trial, so it never really <clears throat> excuse me comes to light. Um, that's part of the way the powerful sort of avoid uh, uh, um, getting blamed for corruption is by by um, um, 
Yeah, by avoiding specific instances mm. of corruption. Dr. Davis, you know, again, at the beginning, when you mentioned our current leader in the Philippines, which is Rodriguez Duterte, and again, he's not a stranger to the international community, and quite the opposite. I think he made himself well-known, either politically or socially or linguistically, and we know that how much he can say or how uh, uh, terrible that he can put the words, you know, towards international leaders, but let's not go there. For, but for this year, that less than 10 days, this country is going to elect another leader. And again, we're not looking at Duterte, this type of personality for the country of Philippines. But we need to look beyond that. We need to look at the characteristics and the personality and the strategies to continue to guide the country uh, of the Philippines towards the new path. So from your perspective, again, we're looking at four different candidates, and, and also there are two candidates already uh, uh, st stood out in a great margin. But from your perspective, as the voters in the Philippines, what kind of characteristics or quality they are looking for this year in terms of electing a new leader? Again, corruption its one thing, but I mean, we, we can say financial corruption. We can also say political uh, corruption. We can also say any other type of corruptions. But again, Dr. Davis, from your perspective, what kind of specific qualities are the voters looking for to replace Duterte or to continue the path that Duterte created for the country before? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. The voters are definitely looking for change. You know, voters in the Philippines aren't particularly happy with the with the direction of the, the country. Mm. Uh, you know, Duterte was very bombastic, but that wasn't ex necessarily always what people liked about him. You know, they saw him in some ways as anti-establishment. I don't mm. think that's really very accurate. I, you know, in many ways, he's a very traditional establishment figure. I mean, he comes from a political dynasty. His father was a governor. His, if you trace back his ancestors, I was just looking into this. There, they were a very wealthy family in the even the pre-American and the Spanish period. They were, you know, a very wealthy, powerful family. Um, so he comes from you know a very traditional sort of political background, which is you know family connections and then wealth and power. Um, but he positioned himself as someone, you know. Who would oppose systems like that who would you know change uh, uh sort of who who would you know reform and he he talked a good game about things like that you know uh, uh opposing sort of the the standard political interest i don't think it was ever really all that accurate in his case uh marco senior also did a similar thing you know when he came into power was being from a dynasty, but essentially running against dynasties. Mm. Now, Marcos Jr., his campaign has been much more sort of a return to past glories. There's been a, a real effort over the last 10, 20 years to sort of revitalize the image of the Marcos dictatorship, to make it sort of look better in retrospect than it really was in practice. And it's been substantially successful, you know, especially among, I mean, the Philippines is a very young population. Uh, I, I forgot the percent, I think it's in the article, but a lot of voters, you know, now weren't born, you know, by the time Ferdinand, when Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was in power. So they don't have direct memory of the dictatorship. 
and you know it's been presented in a more positive light so you know he so marcos jr bongbong is running on his own sort of version of you know what trump called make america great again the sort mm. of a return to past glories um so that's definitely some of it but again it's, it's a message of change but it's a message of change like we have to revert to what was working you know in the past basically and that's you know, uh, uh, as opposed to the the current vice president who's running on a campaign, which is more, we need reform. It's also a message of change. It's not a message of the status quo is working well, but it's a message of, you know, uh, uh, a sort of more forward-looking change, you know. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Dr. Davis, you know, it's one thing that when we look at a country's election domestically, and not only that, again, as I mentioned in the intro, that create some sorts of impact for the people within the country, but also it matters on the grander scale or on a greater scale, which is international level. And we know that the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S., I guess we could say bittersweet. So in other words, Duterte is one unconventional leader. And also, of course, that U.S., is or has gone a uh, uh, tremendous this political impact or political shift. Now, from your perspective, how do you think that Bonbon, or again, someone as Bonbon who came from this dynasty's family of political ties, will see the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S.? So, in other words, and we know when we going back when we talk about political political corruption or financial corruption. One thing is so dangerous to link its leader with any other countries. You know, again, again, as I mentioned before, it's rather difficult to, to be traced. But given that condition, how do you think that he's going to balance the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. in terms of to make himself stand out among the vote, among the other candidates? That's an interesting question. Um, the current president, Duterte, was much more sort of China focused. I mean, that's really the Philippines struggle in international relations is historically the Philippines is very tied to the US for better and for worse. Uh, but geographically, you know, it's it's sort of just on the edge of China's orbit, which is, is a difficult place to be, you know. Um, I'm always reminded of the, the famous line from the, the Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz, where he said, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. Oh. Uh, I think it sort of applies to the Philippines, you know. The Philippines is too close to China for its own sort of comfort, basically. Um, but yeah, uh, Duterte really had a, a tried to have a warm relationship with China. It was never reciprocated that well uh, from China, uh, but it was definitely his position. All, the candidates running now are much uh, closer to the U.S. generally. Uh, that's a complicated relationship for Bong Bong, though. He, I mean, after his father fell from power, him and the rest of his family fled to the U.S., to Hawaii, uh, which is where his, his father died. But Bong Bong hasn't been back in the U.S. for a while and actually has a, a large court decision against him waiting in the U.S. over his father's estate. Mm. Uh, he a couple hundred million dollars in contempt fines. It's, it's a very unusual case. So he has some trouble going back to the U.S. these days. That probably doesn't apply to, you know, 
if he becomes president, it probably wouldn't, you know, affect a state visit. But mm. so his family both has close ties to the U.S., but also, you know, a more strained relationship in the last, you know, decade or two. Um, but most people see most people see, you know, Duterte's embrace of China as somewhat surprising and expect the Philippines to shift more towards the U.S., um, if nothing else, to sort of counter the growing influence of China, which is is more threatening. I mean, the U.S. is sort of too far these days to really sort of be involved. The ties are mostly historic rather mm. than geographic. Um, that's always been a complicated relationship in the Philippines. Uh, there is... Uh, there's always been a division in the Philippines in how the U.S. is seen or a long-standing division between the elite and sort of the more common people. Mm. There, there, there's a, a story that goes that, you know, after the Spanish period when the U.S. took over, that the elite sort of were pretty happy to see the U.S. take over because it opened trade opportunities while the common people wanted independence. Mm. Uh, so there was there was a tension there for a long time. Um, and you still see this where a lot of families uh, in the Philippines, you know, dynastic families uh, have deep ties to the U.S. going back to the U.S. colonial period. Mm. You know, Dr. Davis, again, I'm very glad that you mentioned the country of China. And I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before uh, uh, letting you go. Now, we know that China looms large over the election. And again, and as you mentioned before, Duterte that kept his distance adopting what we called a friendly attitude towards China. And despite uh, this previous uh, territorial dispute regarding the South China Sea. But we know that on one hand, the relationship between U.S. and Duterte has not been very promising and has not been very smooth because, you know, again, many reasons. And we don't need to repeat that. But on the other hand... China, it's a rising start, and the U.S. sees China as a political threat and also as an economic competitor. But Philippines is strategically located in Asia. If Bongbong, let's just say hypothetically, continue this friendly attitude towards China, how much do you think that a Chinese government will appreciate uh, a, a leader as Bongbong, or how much do you think that China is going to react to such a leader, which can be different from Duterte, but meanwhile can also be similar as Duterte? What's your take on that? I mean, it was somewhat surprising to me that China never warmed to Duterte that much. Uh, I mean, they, you know, they, they, there have been some. Uh, provocative, you know, sort of territorial issues and fishing issues, the minutiae of which are, are too esoteric to get into. But China was never that, you know, friendly to Duterte. And Duterte paid some political price for this. Mm. Uh, you know, there was sort of a, a nationalist, I mean, the nationalist feeling in every country, but sort of that sometimes turns against China in the Philippines when they're sort of when China is pushing these these territorial disputes. Now, China's territorial disputes with Philippines can be overstated. The Philippines is, I mean, it's only really the most northern, northern part of the Philippines that is anywhere close to China. Mm. Um, the main sort of islands are, are a good bit south. 
So we're really talking about sort of fishing and sort of these tiny sort of uninhabitable islands <clears throat> and maybe shipping, but not really. Um, so you could pretty easily have, you know, de-escalation or a more positive relationship. The issues between the Philippines and China aren't that fundamental. Mm. Um, China has more sort of uh, fundamental issues with other countries or more sort of serious contentions with other countries. But the Philippines is just not that serious. Mm. But also China is a very, you know, economically focused country. That's how that's how the, the Communist Party has made its success is delivering sort of economic gains. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's what they focus a lot on. And the Philippines is, in the end, a small economy mm. and one that that isn't <coughs> politically that important or economically that important to China. So in the end, I think China just continues to sort of not pay a huge amount of attention mm. to the Philippines. I don't think anyone who's going to get elected is going to affect that too greatly. I mean, you know, China's more serious issues are with the with the U.S. or with their more proximate neighbors or with their larger trading partners. Mm. Dr. Davis, let's continue our conversation. You know, regarding the topic that when we talk about uh, corruption, we talk about political changes, or we talk about international relations, one thing is so interesting that Again, under globalization today, it's so cru crucial that we must address is the concept of democracy. We always say across the world, every single country, it's fair to say it's undergoing this tremendous democratic shift. You know, on one hand, that the leaders are trying to preserve the value of democracy. But on the other hand, younger generations today are pushing or um, generating noises towards political and social agenda. So from your perspective, Dr. Davis, how do you think that today the voters, especially the younger generations today in the Philippines, they interpret the meaning of democracy. So in other words, what does democracy mean to the people in the Philippines in terms of the legitimacy of the election, the political agenda of the country, social welfare, and etc.? What is your take on that? I think part of the reason we see, um, you know, the rise of so many candidates in the Philippines who who run on some sort of platform of shaking up the system is that, you know, voters in the Philippines, citizens in the Philippines are broadly unhappy with the direction of the country, you know? So you see the, the son of a former dictator running on sort of a platform of things were better in the past where the past, you know, his family's past was a dictatorship. Mm. Um, but it's not that people necessarily don't care about democracy. It's that it's they're unhappy with the results it has produced. Mm. After Marco Sr. fell from power, there was a lot of sort of uh, uh, hope about the sort of leaders that would come after. And voters have been largely disappointed in them. Uh, too many have been <coughs> corrupt. Too many have been, you know, seeming sort of self-serving and just sort of failing to provide real change. So you end up with, with voters who are, are, yeah, who are, you know, looking to other things or who are 
not sort of enamored with with the institutions that brought this, like democracy. Hmm. Dr. Davis, I want to end our conversation with the last question. Again, let's go back to the article that you wrote regarding the corruption thrives. Less than 10 days and the country is going to elect a leader. And I think this leader is going to play a significant role. And right now, let's focus on the continent of Asia. Back in 2020, the pandemic shook up the entire world. And when we look at this economic impact or this economic uh, uh, relationship, Philippines and Vietnam and Thailand and China, etc., you name it, somehow brought all the countries together because of the pandemic. Now, from your perspective, how do you think that this new leader or this new president is going to uh, uh, reshape this international relationship post-pandemic, even though some of the countries are still suffering from this pandemic. But again, we people need to move on and people uh, need to see changes post the pandemic. What are some of the st- strategies or what are some of the most or a possible results or possible um, methodologies that this leader is going to propose in order to help people to leave the darkness or the shadow of the pandemic? Yeah, it's a, been a difficult question for the Philippines. Um, the the Philippines, you know, you saw very different strategies of dealing with the pandemic across uh, Southeast Asia. The Philippines went pretty hard or very hard into, you know, lockdowns, not maybe to the extent of China, but way more than you saw in, in, in most countries, especially most democratic countries. Mm. Uh, for a while, they were shutting down basically all flights into and out of the country, I mean, when, during the lockdowns, they at points, you know, set up police checkpoints around Manila and things like that, um, you know, which is very different than even, you know, one of their closest neighbors, Indonesia, which adopted a much more hands-off approach to things. The results have been mixed. Duterte was a pretty big uh, proponent of, you know, sort of strict enforcement of COVID measures. Uh, you can see it as something of an extension of his sort of law and order persona, sort of these are the rules, you better obey them. Uh, the other, the candidates now have been much more sort of uh, um, uh, looser in that. But that also mm. reflects the general public's, you know, exhaustion with with COVID measures. Even if necessary, it's been, it's been you know, a couple, it's been a difficult couple of years for everyone everywhere. Mm. Um so I think, you know, you expect to see increasing loosing, loosening of uh, COVID measures. The Philippines also has not been very successful. I mean, the developed countries have not been very successful. The Philippines has not been very successful at distributing some of the more effective vaccines widely. Uh, the Philippines had, <coughs> I think, limited access to the Chinese vaccine but that just hasn't been nearly as effective mm. and has had not that, has had not, not had broad access to the sort of uh, um, the more effective vaccine. So that's been a problem. I don't know if that's likely to change. There's been, you know, the U.S. just cut its funding for that sort of stuff. Um, But I expect you would see sort of lesser in terms of of lockdowns and whatnot. Mm. Well, 
Dr. Daniel Davis recently completed his PhD in politics at the University of Virginia. His dissertation research explores how dynasties sabotage accountability for corruption in the Philippines. Again, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. And it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And again, let's keep in touch. We love to have you back on the show after the election results come out. And we'll continue to just discuss more regarding the country of the Philippines. Thank you, Dr. Davis. Thank you very much.